when I teach photography or when I do photo walks, I, I keep on hearing people um, comment on creativity. Oh, you're so creative, or this person's so creative, and I'm not a creative person. And I think that's is such a a sad way to look at creativity or yourself. I mean, creativity is literally just play. It's it's creating the freedom and, and the time for yourself to experiment and to potentially fail. Good evening, morning or afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of the Design Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Grove, and with me today is David Dredge. Correct. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did indeed, yes. A verb. <laughs> yeah, it's like to, uh, to pull out stuff from the, the river. The river, yes. Yeah, it's very charming. <laughs> we are sitting in a gallery space. Mm-hmm. Uh, where your work is on exhibition and kind of just the tail end of your exhibition here. Correct, yes. So thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for the invitation. Really appreciate it. The title of this exhibition is Mono. Mm-hmm. What's, why? What's that about? Um, I, the work is predominantly monochromatic, so a lot of black and white or uh, cyanotype, which is uh, only blue. Um, and because of this, I chose just a prefix. Mono is not even a word, it's just a, a prefix to, um, or it has the power to, to create this idea of one. Um, so that was also kind of the theme of this exhibition, is uh, having one subject in the frame or uh, creating collages where I'm using 30, 40 images and creating one piece out of them, this sort of coming together, this. Uh, this unifying power of, of not only photography, but of this, this prefix, this non-word. Before we get into some of the more philosophical topics, um, let's get down to some practicalities. Sure. Your, as you just mentioned, your work on display in this exhibit, I would say, uh, let me try to figure out a good way to say this. I... It could be fair to say that in, in, the, in the context of this exhibit, I could call you a, I don't know, experimental. Sure, I mean, some of the pieces are, yeah. They're it, it, at least in terms of like, oh. The printing or, or the, the process of collage where it's. Right, mm-hmm. so what we, what we don't have here today is uh, what we don't have is snapshots that were printed. We have um, shots that you have put time and consideration into the composition, collaging perhaps in post, and then being very specific with the printing uh, methods that you use, right? Absolutely, yeah. What makes a huge difference, I mean, the more you can control and the more that you are a part of every step of the way and the, the more that you can not only control that but you can affect the outcome, the more the better it is, I find. And also the more personal uh, the work is. Um, so yeah, I, I I've, was a big part of every piece, choosing the papers, if it was just digital prints, using the best printers in the city. Um, but also choosing to print a lot by hand in the darkroom or, or painting uh, using the cyanotype process, which is really old and, and very hands-on and, and so much fun. Uh, you can't, I think you can just see the corner of this one here. It's, uh, and you'll see it later, Thomas will put it in or pan to this. Um, it's a collage of about 40 images. Um, I had the idea of creating a sort of monolith using uh, some iconic buildings from Saigon and creating a sort of panoramic of each one and then stacking them up like a, like a massive layer cake. Um, and the idea in my head uh, initially was just something I'd never tried before, something I'd never seen before. Um, but I'd seen collages and I was really inspired by this technique that you know, I'd, I'd done, I guess, in preschool. And I'd seen a lot of artists uh, making amazing work. Anyway, so I, 
I had this idea. I saw it in my mind. I knew how I wanted to shoot it. I know. I knew the buildings I wanted to shoot, um, including uh, we have the the center of parliament. We've got the uh, national gallery, the reserve bank, and the post office. Initially, it was meant to be really tall and thin, like a monolith. Um, but after about four or five days in Photoshop, and after the first two shoots, I I just uh, I thought that's that's good. That's a good place to to stop. So um, after coming up with a concept, I knew I wanted to shoot it. I knew I wanted the final result to be in black and white. So I went out uh, on two mornings and I captured the um, the photographs uh, without a tripod. A lot of the the places you can't actually put a tripod down. You're not um, you're not discouraged anymore, but this is only in recent years where you can photograph these buildings. I remember being in, in Saigon, uh, even as, as like three years ago or two years ago, where they had signs of no photography of this building, and they, they don't anymore. It's just uh, that the armed security guards um, now tolerate photographers, but perhaps not uh, tripods. So, um, I'm mentioning that because um, it's much easier to stitch images together if you capture them from one vantage point and overlap them. I wasn't able to do that, so I walked along the buildings and captured little stills along and then hand uh, stitched them. And then and once I'd, I had these you know, four gig uh, panoramics, I would uh, downsize them and, and basically stack them up uh, like a layer cake. Yeah. And what, just for reference, some of your higher resolution mm. works, what kind of size files are we talking about? Well, um, my computer can only handle, there's a max for my, my setup, there's a max uh, of four. I mean, you can work on huge eight or nine gig files, but you can only save uh, a four gig to file. So I have to downsize. So um, the size of each layer is four gig. Um, so I, I make one, and it's I, I save it as the max and the biggest it can be. And if I printed one panoramic, it could be, uh, I think it's about two and a half meters long. Um, and then basically, when I have multiple layers that I'm trying to fit together or, or um, you know, move with the the transform tool, I, uh, you know, I slowly do that, and that's maybe so two layers would be eight gig. And then uh, once that's done downsize that and the more so you're always working with two four gig if that makes any sense so you, the eight gig and then you you downsize that and save it as four and then build up and up and up or you do two pieces and then you work on the next two pieces and then bring those in and save it mm. if that makes any sense it's just a, it's a lot of like problem solving and and working with the layers and and uh crossing bridges and solving problems as you as you get to them in and finally with that painting how did you choose to print it in terms of uh, you know the materials? Okay, so um, I met Danny from VG Lab, and Danny is um, just an amazing printer. He's uh, he works with fine art papers, and um, he, he his work is just incredible. He works with all the top guys in the city, and um, so yeah, I I shoot a lot with uh, Ilford film, so I sort of bias toward using Ilford, and Ilford has uh, an excellent range of products, not only uh, light-sensitive photographic paper, but these fine art papers. So this, um, this, the collages are on metallic paper, which is, is it's not glossy, but it, in the highlights it has a lovely sort of uh, almost glittery um, quality, and it's, it's, um, it's lovely, it's really, really pretty. Um, it's a little pricey, but it's worth it, yeah. I noticed it almost gives the print a 3D effect. Sure, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of depth, yeah, yeah. yeah. The it shadows seems... kind of recede sure. into, the, into the background and the, the highlights feel closer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you definitely get what you pay for and um, it, it pays really when you're printing to spend the time in doing tests and in looking at sample papers and, and really, um, I printed this a lot smaller than I initially wanted to just because I wanted to have it on this paper. And uh, here in Vietnam, we were limited to, to the size. Um, it's the maximum sort of uh, length that I could print uh, this. Yeah. Oh. 
Okay, the next series of prints, mm. uh, female nudes. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about the printing process. Sure. Um, so this is a, a is a very small part of what I do. Um, not only printing, but but photographing photographing nude or fine art nude. But um, the the printing technique is really old. It's called cyanotype, and um, it's I think over two hundred years old. And um, it involves uh, mixing this yellow syrup um, and physically painting the the surface that you want to print on. You can print on table, you can print on fabric, you can print pretty much on anything that you can carry into the sunlight. Um, so I, I chose a watercolor paper, a huge 60 by 80 sheet, and I, I painted them on in, in, in subdued light in the, in the shade. And then I had taken digital photographs or digital images and created these huge uh, 60 by 80 um, negatives, basically. And um, it's a contact printing process. So once you have your light-sensitive paper, you lay the um, the negative transparency onto the paper, and you sandwich it between two layers of tempered glass. So it's really heavy, and then you got to wait for a really nice, sunny, clear day, and you carry it out into the sunlight, and you physically watch it change from yellow to a deep, what they call Prussian blue or cyan, and then uh, as the sunlight hits it, it changes eventually to like a, a gray or an ash gray color. And then you carry it back into the dark, and you take it out, and you wash it in, in tap water. And then you get this lovely sort of blue, uh, or Prussian blue tone or print. And you can also, I mean, it's dependent on the paper as to the contrast and the, the color that you're actually going to get. So if you were to use a, a different paper, uh, you'd get a slightly different color or a different contrast. And a lot of people tone the work, so they soak it in, in red wine to give the, the highlights of sort of pink pop and makes the, uh, the tannins in the wine makes the, the Prussian blue turn to a, like a purple, which some people really like. Other people um, tone it in coffee or tea, and that has the same effect as like in an, an art class with a kid who's trying to make a, in his pirate treasure map look really old. It has that kind of uh, effect. So it, it makes the highlights or anything white turn to that uh, sort of sepia or aged color. And then it, it's, it has only a very slightly ef slight effect on the blues, making it slightly darker or gray. And then if you use tannic acid, um, which is sort of a concentrated tannin, um, it can make the blue a black or a gray without damaging the highlights at all. So there's, I mean, there's a lot you can do with it. And while you're printing, if you, if you, um, you know, if a droplet of sweat goes onto the paper, it will affect the chemical reaction. Or if you were to use uh, lemon juice or tomato juice or any kind of acid or alkali on the substrate after it's dried, it will have a reaction. And then once that's dry or, or once it's exposed to the sun, it will create its own little acid burn or it's little yeah which is really cool so there's it there's a, a huge scope for for creative expression and, and playing i mean if you have the time if you could afford it and if you you know uh, absolutely there's, there's so much you can do with the process and then i thought one of the nice things is it almost has a like a blueprint feel to it absolutely well that's the a blueprint is is where this whole process comes from so <clears throat> I guess uh, architects or designers uh, from way before the turn of the century, you know, 19th century, I guess, they would draw out the design of the ship or the building that they were they designed. Uh, they draw it out on, on a plastic or maybe like a greaseproof paper um, with some very heavy um, black lines. And then they would do the same process. So they would, to, to duplicate it, because this is way before the printing press. So they would, uh, in the dark also, or in a, uh, in a shady um, area, they'd print, or they'd, they'd paint all of these papers, and let them dry, and then expose them to the sun with this, uh, the actual design uh, on this transparent sheet, 
expose it to the sunlight and then physically create these prints. And, and when you washed them, the black line would create a white line because it's contact printed and it's, uh, it's creating that shadow which is etching out onto the, the paper. And everything that's not um, obstructing the light from the sun would turn that deep cyan or Prussian blue. So the print itself looks, it's entirely blue, but you'd have all the fine details of the, the figures and the, me the, the measurements and, and yeah. And then basically they'll do, so you could do one master copy um, and then you could do an unlimited number of, of uh, blueprints which were given out to the bricklayers or the, the steel workers or whatever in the project. And then they'd be rolled up into those, cool. yeah. You have your panoramas mm -hmm. and the, the, um, the uh, bicycle fish type one. Is that still on the wall or did you deliver that one already? Oh yeah, that was sold. So I, that was, it's over here. Um, that was another collage. Oh, that one was yeah, here. That was, so it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well. It was, it was meant to be a series of five. I wanted to do at least five big digital collages and print them on metallic paper. But um, I underestimated how long it was going to take me to print the, um, do the analog darkroom printing. Uh, which we'll get to a little later, or the cyanotype printing. Um, around the time I was printing, there was it was still at sort of the tail end of the wet season, so there was a lot of rain, and also the smog, like the haze in Saigon. Just you know, the quality of light it's it's not particularly strong or, or nice to to be out uh, in. So yeah, it took a lot a little longer, and and physically. Um, coming to print, every, everything I thought I could knock out in a, a morning took two days. You know, the, the I have ten analog darkroom prints, um, and I thought I could do that in three, four hours, and it took four days. So ten prints taking—it's just the process itself is is really intensive, and and yeah, cool. especially if you if you a stickler for detail and you are trying to make it as as good as you poss as it possibly can be. Mm. Uh, well, let's go ahead and, and um, then work through. Is there anything um, technical you want to mention about the other, um, like the the um, the skyline? Sure, the panoramics. Yeah. Um, the panoramics, it's it's a fairly easy process. The hardest thing about making a great panoramic is seeing it uh, or training yourself to see um, that wider a, a scene that will work and that balances well in that much wider perspective I mean as a photographer you have people who tend toward uh, square formats and um, there are others who tend toward the the more traditional like this format is two by three um, and then the one that I really, really love to do for, for landscapes is, is a much longer uh, panoramic. So that's the, the biggest challenge is, is really just seeing something that's going to work. Is even, you know, if it's one long subject that you can you know, compress into that, or if it's just a scene that is going to balance really nicely the lights or the elements, you know, the foreground. But the process itself is not particularly difficult it's just um you don't have to use a tripod you just have to overlay the images by at least sort of 20 percent and then um you have to control the exposure so that you can have major um focus changes or exposure changes between your frames so everything has to be set manually and it cannot change from the start to the finish and you also can't dally um, so the light is changing, if the wind, especially if the light is changing rapidly or, or you know, the wind is very um, strong or there's many people moving in and out of the image, you've got to start and kind of click across fairly, fairly quickly. And, yeah. and then just to bring it into Photoshop and um, stitch it together in Panorama and, and that's where it kind of begins. That's when you have your canvas to start working from. Tell me a little bit about where you came from and how you eventually got to Saigon. Okay. Um, I was born and raised in, in Zimbabwe. Um, and my family moved around a bit. My 
my father is a pilot, so he traveled, he has been traveling for most of our lives. Um, so we lived in the UK as when we were very young. And um, so from Zim, uh, the, the economy basically collapsed when I was in high school. I was about 16 and the economy basically just collapsed. And um, the dollar went from, say, 20 to 1 to the US dollar to, you know, 40, 50, 60, you know, in a matter of days. So my father, who had a, a mortgage on his house that was going to take him 15 years to pay off, he basically paid that off in one paycheck, you know, with, with change. And um, it, it was a very strange time to, to be in that country. Um, I mean, it's, uh, just to give a, an example, while before I left to go to South Africa, it was um, this sort of scenario where the, the supermarket would open and it would have really limited uh, stock in the supermarket. And then they would have a specific price in the morning and then they'd close for three hours over lunch and reprice everything because the economy is just falling so rapidly they needed a like an afternoon price and then close early and then reprice the next morning and it was just like that it was just it just tumbled so so quickly so um i i went to boarding school in south africa um on the east coast um and yeah that was amazing like massive culture shock you know surfing and south african culture which is uh much more first world, I would say, than I was. I mean, so, so Zimbabwe is like l light years behind, you know. Um, so that was that was interesting. And then um, I, after that, I went to um, University of Cape Town, and uh, I studied um, film media production. I was accepted to study architecture, but quickly realized it wasn't for me. I was uh, I did uh, an A level in um in tech drawing and and engineering but and I was really good at it which made me which made it a kind of no brainer but I um I just wasn't interested in in it and it didn't inspire I wouldn't I wanted a more creative outlet so I changed to study uh, film media production with English lit and that's kind of where photography, I got bitten by the photography bug because I liberated the family camera, like being in high school and, and my father was really strict. There was one camera in the house, a little old piece of crap film camera and nobody was allowed to use it. It was only my dad who could use it and you know, you know, on occasion my mom would take it out. And um, when I went to university, I knew it was gonna be this, this incredible adventure and uh, I knew nobody there. I knew nothing about what Cape Town you know, was, but I just knew it was going to be incredible. I was going to be on my own. I was going to be able to do, I was going to have all this time. So I, I stole the camera uh, from my old man's, my old man's cupboard. And um, yeah, I just started walking around the street and, and just shooting whatever film I could get my hands on. Knew nothing about film or exposure. Uh, it was like a little Fuji point-and-shoot anyway. Um, but yeah, it was, it was fun. It was an excuse to constantly go out and, and search for subjects and play and be creative. And it, it was wonderful. It was a really wonderful experience. I, I didn't have enough money to develop the film <laughs> at the time. So it was, uh, you know, it was a case of, okay, uh, am I going to eat noodles for three weeks straight uh, so that I can develop this one role just to see what it is. And, and I remember getting it back from the lab and, and just not being able to do prints or, I mean, so this was before scans. This is like in the, in the early 2000s. And um, just like, you know, holding up the, the negatives and looking at the lights and people would be saying like, you have those photographs? Or, you know, I'd be like, yeah, come have a look. And they'd be staring through this negative, like brown, like, oh, right, great. Thanks for that. <laughs> But yeah, so that's where it just started, and, and um, I met uh, a good friend of mine who was um, working as an assistant for a professional studio, and this place really changed my life, um, well, visiting that place. Um, he was a German guy, and he had purchased this church. It was like an old stone, maybe like a Methodist church or something, and the city of Cape Town had, they couldn't, um, I wouldn't say the churches were abandoned, but uh, they were given back to the state or the 
I don't know exactly. So that they were they were sold. A lot of these churches, these old churches, and they're huge stone buildings with these ornate uh, stained glass windows. And um, anyway, this this German guy had purchased the church and parked his Harleys into it, taken all the pews out and converted it into this enormous um, space that had like hardwood floors and, and it's it beautiful. And he'd put these panels, these light panels all over the walls. Um, and at the time he was shooting commercial advertising work on um, like four by five and eight by 10 um, positive film. And positive film is incredibly rich. I mean, landscape photographers still use positive film because it's so sharp and because the fidelity on it, the, the colors are just so incredibly rich. Um, and yeah, so, so the, the biggest pros, the biggest uh, landscape pros, I'd say a lot of them still use these. Um, it's harder and harder to get this kind of film and harder and harder to process it. But anyway, so... Uh, you walk into this church, open this huge door, turn all the, all the, the lights on, and there'd be these huge uh, like perspex light panels, and you'd flick all the switches on individually, and these huge, these big, almost A4 um, transparencies, positive transparencies, would come to life. The light would shine through them, and it was like looking at a at the most amazingly composed image for if it was fashion or an editorial shoot, but it was the colors just blew my mind. I'd never seen anything so sharp and, and rendered so incredibly well. And I think seeing that just flipped a switch in my brain and I was just like, I need to capture this. I need to create, I need, I need to recreate the world for myself or, you know, in this way, I need to, I need to, I need to learn or teach myself how to do that. Uh, you were working at that? No, place? no, no. no so, just... uh, a very good friend, my my roommate's, uh, so my landlord's boyfriend was this assistant in this this place, and he was uh, yeah, photographic assistant. He's a, he's a, actually a painter, but he, he was working as a, a as a photographic assistant in this place, and he'd invite me in on like a Sunday when he was supposed to go in to do stock take. And we'd take out like a big eight by ten camera, and you know we'd take out back in the day it was um, Polaroid uh, peel apart film, which is virtually extinct now. If you you know it's incredibly expensive, you can even find it. So you mount um, this huge camera with bellows. You set up these lights to, uh, to photograph anything. It could be as simple as as a rose on a on a stand, and you mount this uh, peel apart film on the back of this huge camera. And um, you know, test it, and you know, uh, take the reading of the light, and manually focus it, and 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 compensate for, you know, the distance, and like the cameras from before the turn of the century, basically. And um, yeah, you'd you'd have this this little ba um, Polaroid back, so you'd rip it out, and and it's a little plastic sheet with with. Um, uh, and basically, when you rip it, it it uh, it opens this little um, uh, bundle of chemicals that runs across between the two strips of plastic. And uh, so you put it under your arm to keep it warm. It's actually also an interesting part of uh, um, from I think from popular culture, people think that you you're supposed to agitate or flick the Polaroid. It's also come it also comes from that hip hop. Um, is it Nelly? shake it like a Polaroid picture. You don't actually shake a Polaroid picture. You, it, it's the, the, the chemical reaction happens um, on its own and it, it's accelerated by warmth. So if you put it under your arm or, or on your stomach, it's that the heat that helps the chemical react quicker. I think that we were, I mean, as kids, when I was a kid, Polaroids were a thing. Mm. And we were under the impression that because you're exposing it to air, mm. that Sure. Flicking it is going to give it more air, and it will f quicken the development. Mm. No, it's 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 actually not like the old Polaroids, are, or I mean, Fuji still has those Instax things. So what it is, it's a little plastic frame, and um, the front is transparent. The back is uh, is sensitive to light, and it has a little um, little bag of of chemicals underneath it. So when you click, when you 
press the shutter and it exposes for a second to light, that's registered on the, the paper. And then when it ejects that little um, frame or that little Polaroid, um, there are these two little metal rollers that basically squeeze the chemical out of the little bag or whatever it is and then gently spread it all the way along the inside of the between the two sheets between the light sensitive um, layer on the back and the transparent on the front so it's squeezed between that and then basically the weight is the reaction the reaction between the chemical and the light sensitive backer um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and you, so can ex you can speed that up by keeping it warm. So if you were to shoot in snow, it would be a longer time that it would come out. If it was, the air was cold, yeah. So doing this... That might actually make it slower, right? You're yeah, because like yeah, yeah, it's, it's it yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's colder than it would have been if you just put it under your arm. It's well, slower. we didn't... I, I guess... I mean, Sorry, you, see, you, see, you see one person do it, and then you just do it too. That's it. I mean, right? yeah. These, these. Um, it's. I mean, it's. It's also fun. It, it's because you're doing it in physics. It's happening in your hand. You also there's this desire to be a part of the process of 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 it. You know, it's so tense. You have this in your hand, and it's 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 still wide. It doesn't create anything. So you want to almost be a part of this. Um, process of helping it along. So I guess you know that that action gives you that that satisfaction that that you're that you're developing. The other thing it. that uh, I have a memory of cameras back then having, which is not a thing anymore, mm. is these flash cubes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a little prison that you put on to spread the light out. Yeah. Is that what it was? Mm. I got the sense that these things would burn out and you'd have to replace them. Sure. I mean, the really old ones, they have little bulbs and uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a really intense pop of electricity from the battery and, uh, you know, just like a normal light bulb, um, they can only, they only last so many times with so many, you know, flash durations and then you got to buy another one. Yeah. <laughs> and even easier, I mean, even earlier from like the twenties, they had those um, big four by five, like Graflex cameras with bulbs on and, and basically the intensity of the flash was so much that it would, it would pop the bulb. So you'd have the red carpet with all these um, 20s movie stars, you know, walking out of, you know, walking into the theater and you'd have these photographers basically, um, you know, capturing them and the flash would pop and you'd, you'd have almost like a the flash makes the sound of, of breaking glass, like delicate glass breaking, and the bulb physically falls out. And then they, the photographer puts another one in and then does it again. And you hear this, like, I can't make the sound of delicate glass crunching and breaking. But, yeah, yeah there, there are scenes in films where, where the photographers are scrambling over all this broken glass on the floor underneath their feet because they're trying to capture all the stars as they come in. And of course, it's, it's a click and a break and another one and more glass and more glass. Hmm. They would say, um, can we have permission to film here? And then they'd be like, okay, but you have to clean up after yourself. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Did you bring your broom and your pan? Because uh, we're not, we're not going to clean up your mess. Yeah, the assistant. Did you get the assistant to, <laughs> to come in? Mm. Oh, sorry, that was like a really long tangent. So the, the question is, where, where did I come uh, you know what led me to this to this point? Yeah, how so, did you get to Vietnam? After, okay, after so it was after varsity. Africa. Yeah, yeah. So I studied film media production in varsity, and I was in a production uh, class to to make these student films. So I, I did a lot of that. That was a lot of fun. A lot of writing too. Learning to write journalism, uh, to write uh, radio plays and 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 screenplays, um, which was a lot more frustrating because I guess when you're 20, you don't really have a lot to say. You you're just 20, your life experience is, is very limited. So, um, yeah, I was just trying to emulate, um, you know, writing like uh, the writers of um, Faulty Towers or, you know, those old English, like Blackadder, you know, write stuff like that. But comedy is incredibly hard to write and write well. So, but yeah, it's a, you know, learning curve. So, it was that, there was varsity. And then, um, 
came back to the East Coast um, and started working for production companies on like television sets, making absolutely no money and having to supplement this terrible income <laughs> by working in a bar, um, which is where I met my wife. This was about 14 years ago. And um, from there, um, we just sort of were inseparable from the time we met. And um, we just, from this little coastal, beautiful coastal town, where there's only real, really two choices, is either to you know, work in a bar or work in construction. So it was, okay, we need to get out. We just need to get out of this little town. So we did. Uh, she graduated film and I worked in this bar. Um, I w became the manager and then we, we moved to South Korea and I went from earning maybe $350 a month working seven days a week, you know, 14, 15 hours a day and drinking like every day as you do in a bar um, to going to South Korea and teaching English um, in public schools and earning, you know, five, six times that, seven times that working mornings only teaching you know students to to parrot your english it was an absolute trip and and korea was it's a very strange place to live it's a very pretty place to live um but yeah we did that for three years i loved it my wife hated it um and then after that thailand to do more teaching qualifications my wife is just she found this passion for for teaching, and so we went to Thailand. We got um, certifications and qualified, you know, qualified um, courses. And then um, during our stay in Korea, we um, traveled here. We did like a three-week Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City, and we just loved, fell in love with the country, um, the food, the people. Just yeah, we just absolutely fell in love with with it and we made a decision I think consciously then to come here and to find a job and to live here and we did so we, we packed that up after we did our final contract and we moved over here I think uh, we both loved Hanoi just how old it was and how, how pretty it is up there but um, could only find a job in the south and and yeah I've been here nine years now and um, I hated my first year I think I'm a bit of a country boy at heart, just, you know, like my green spaces and, um, but it sort of grew on me. I, fi I found uh, my sort of little corner of the city and I just explored it and, and yeah, it's home now. Um, and yeah, and a couple of years ago, I, I've, I stumbled upon uh, this space, uh, or Ngalp, who's the, the owner of this uh, gallery space now, and it was just a dark room before. And um, I, like I said, I'd, I'd always shot film and, and struggled with, um, it was a passion. I loved shooting film, but I had knew so little about it at that stage or how to, to develop and print it. So I, I basically, I took classes and um, I started projects and I started working with film again on the side as a sort of uh, holiday or antidote to the intense uh, Photoshop work that's included with um, client retouching and, and commercial work. So that was kind of a holiday where you don't have to retouch and you don't have to use a computer at all to generate art or to generate beautiful pictures. Um, so yeah, that kind of takes me to there. And then, I mean, now moved to this bigger space and he'd been sort of nagging at me for a couple of years to, to show some work. And I said, no, and no, I'm not ready, and I don't know what to show, and no, no, no. And eventually I just sort of caved one day. I was like, just, let's just do it. Yeah, and so here I am. Doing art or doing film for the love of doing it versus getting paid to do it and what it takes to be able to make it your full-time job and not a side hobby. Sure. Well, I mean... If you love, let's just, let me just say, like, for, you know, to, to talk about photography as a hobby, um, there are amazing photographers who, who never pursue it as their full-time thing and make incredible work, make work that's, you know, way better than, than a lot of professionals that I know. Um, so there's that, but, sorry, your question again was... 
Well, I, I, when we were talking the other night, um, I mentioned something about being able to s sell more prints. Mm. Like maybe if you did this, sure. you could sell more prints. And then you're like, well, it's not really about the money. Mm. But at the same time, at this point, you are photography is your main gig. You sure. are a professional full-time photographer sure. and make your living doing that. Sure. So there's a lot of interesting, I think, tension there that mm -hmm. would be worth exploring mm -hmm. in terms of uh, perhaps, like, I'm sure there's certain projects you do out of passion, other projects you do because they pay the bills. Mm -hmm. um, and there's and probably a lot of the people listening might have a creative True. hobby. Mm-hmm. Me, I'm. Uh, I think at this point you could say I'm a hobbyist uh, podcaster, but mm -hmm. I would like to be a professional podcaster. Why sure. not, right? So, is there? You know, what are the lessons we can learn? What do you have to teach us about going from photography being something that, like, okay, I have to work a full time job at a bar, mm. but I'm doing some photos on the side. Sure. To now, I mean, it's a long journey, but like, mm. what would that journey look like for someone? Sure. Uh, let me just say, I, I've been doing photography on the side and, and since I was about 18. So I, I've been shooting um, different mediums and doing it basically for myself for since I was 18. Um, so there are two definite sides and you have to be aware of, um, of what you're really doing. Nobody is going to hire you I don't think to just do things your way, the way that you, I mean, you may be incredibly lucky and find that person or that gig, but it's, it's not likely to happen. I don't think in my experience. Um, so basically if you want to make money, uh, in photography, you have to find that product or that service that you are offering that people are willing to pay for. And you have to treat it as, there's two things. You have to treat it as a craft that you have to perfect. You have to become incredibly good at it. You have to be, and you have to constantly teach yourself and learn and, and, and try to get better at performing, not only like physically capturing those pictures and physically uh, refining them in post-production, but you also have to get very good at posing and of um, dealing with your clients and, and the business side of it. It's all a craft and it's, it's ultimately a kind of service that you're providing and you need to be uh, the best possible service provider you can be. But the other side of the coin is, is art and, and the love of making pictures. And you don't, I don't think, um, need to throw that away just because you are pursuing photography as, as, a, as a source of income, you know. Um, you should always still do personal work. Personal work is, is incredibly important. It, it keeps you sane a lot of the time because if you, if you, I think if you were to only do, say, weddings, you know, and that's all you ever did in one way and one style, you'd probably burn out or you'd lose that spark or that initial passion that you, you went into, you know, you, you started out on. So, um, the lovely thing about photography and filmmaking and, and these kind of creative endeavors is there's so many aspects. There's so much you can do with it. You know, digital has so many forms and outlets, you know, and, and the same with, with filmmaking. There's so many genres of photography. Um, so for me, I dabble. I mean, I, I shoot black and white film. I develop it myself. I, I print it myself. I shoot panoramics on digital. I do digital collages. I, I shoot video. Um, and it's, it's, some of it is just sort of an antidote to the other, oh, like a bit of a break to break it up. You know, like I've done way too much client work and retouching, so I need to go out with a film camera and just free have, you know, generate the space where I have the freedom to just, you know, make something physically with, with my hand and reconnect with that love of the craft that I have. So I don't necessarily think it's, it's one or the other. In fact, I would agree that, like if you're, a, if you're a, a, a wedding photographer or an event photographer, and that's, that's what you do, and you wanted to get better at your craft, I think... Um, going out and getting a cheap film camera and, and hitting the streets and you don't have to call yourself a street photographer or be any kind of hardcore you know street work to to learn how people move and to learn how to tell stories and anticipate moments and 
you know, doing a different, dabbling with a different genre or a different medium can really help you, especially with film when it's it's so limiting and when um, it's so much more difficult and when it, it physically, there's so many more mistakes you can make. It's just that concentration, it's that challenge, personal challenge that that drives you, that pushes you to be better. Whereas if you just stay with the one thing you do and you're chasing the money and you're you can lose sight of it and you can either burn out or you it can begin to affect uh, the work, depending on you. I mean, it's people are, are different, I guess. But I, I, for me, it's not one or the other. It's the, the beauty of it is, is, is being able to challenge yourself and try something new. And, and more often than not, you learn a whole bunch of things that you can reapply or, you know, you, you, you look at something like this big exhibition as not only a... a an opportunity to showcase your what you're capable of but also a like a personal challenge to to do something to do a lot of things you've never done and the real test is is in gauging people's reactions and in selling pieces like is it you know can you sell a piece is, your, is it that good is it good enough to sell you know and what do people think and and that of course informs like having conversations with you like you you as you said before um, if you were to take people on the journey of, of how difficult or interesting the process of analog printing is, it could inform the work and it could make people appreciate or, or understand what this really is. When looking at a work of art, you could be judged on the, on the final output. Mm -hmm. Like, how does this thing look like? You know, without any context. Mm, just the just aesthetic. Just looking the at plan. this image... How does it? How does the viewer respond? How it, yeah. To it? How does it make you feel? Yeah. Is it is it emotive? Is it you know? And then there's perhaps another camp mm -hmm. uh, where it's like uh, the process is as important, or sometimes even more important than the final output. True. Well, I mean, there's there are forms of art like um, what do we? What is that? Is it abstract expressionism? I could be misquoting that, but you have painters or artists like Picasso who would deconstruct, maybe it's a deconstructivism, where they would, say for Picasso, he would draw, do a sketch of a bull, and it would have, be very detailed. And he would finish that piece, and then he would throw the picture away or put it away and take out another sheet and try to draw the same bull from memory, so reducing the the number of lines and the, the amount of detail. And then he would put that at the bottom of the pile and take another piece of paper and do it again and again until the final piece is just one fluid motion, like one continuous line drawing where he's drawing this thing and it's coming, he's almost internalized this this uh, piece and it's 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 coming from, not from sight and from copying something, but it's, it's, it's uh, his interpretation or his expression of, of what this is. So I think... Am I well, yeah, so in that case, you could look at... Mm. You have two options, like as the exhibitor, mm. as the curator of Picasso. Mm. One is you could show just the final bull image. True. Or the other is you could show, like, a timeline mm. of, of each of the images mm. from the first one to the final one. True. And... Um, I mean, I, don't, I guess, I mean, I, I, I doubt this is a situation where we can say there's a right or wrong answer mm. to which approach you should take. Mm. But as a maker, I think it's always interesting to see what's behind. Sure, absolutely. You know, to see behind the scenes and uh, to know about the process. Mm -hmm. I think you can still judge the final piece of work on its own merit and at the same time... Um, sure, appreciate yeah. what's gone into it or the thought of the processor, yeah. Well, this is kind of what, what analog printing the, is about. You, you, you have to do it for yourself. You have to do it. It's not an end to itself. It's not, um, you know, just because you're printing a piece uh, using a, an old cyanotype process or you're printing it in darkroom doesn't mean necessarily mean it's good or better than printing it digitally. It doesn't, absolutely doesn't at all. In fact, it, you know, obviously technology's come a very long way and you can make incredible pieces digitally, you know, with computers. 
um, even rendering, I mean, creating um, hyper-realistic, um, what look like photographs, just completely by drawing. Um, but there is something to be said for the craft of 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 um, of making something and being a part physically a part using you know physically using your own hands and and being a part there's a joy in it which i think is uh is something everyone should experience you know and i highly recommend any artist um to do you know to experience and to to express themselves because it it changes and you um it really um not only do you learn from it but like Picasso sort of process it becomes a lot more internalized uh, in doing that and it becomes more um, there's more sort of gaps in all these several steps to to put your little put yourself into it almost whereas sitting at a computer and and moving uh, files around and and use working with brushes Yes, it's you, but it's it's uh, it doesn't physically have your fingerprints on it. It doesn't you know you haven't you know physically agitated. You haven't physically worked with the chemicals, and so I mean, it, there's just that. You get something with the again. What's this process? Uh, the cyanotype, mm -hmm. where you can't help but uh, introduce random elements, exactly expressive it. elements. That's exactly it, and. The imperfection, the beauty is in the imperfections in exactly. many ways. It's exactly. Um, I mean, that, that is, it's a beautiful part of art. And also, you know, creating something that is, is more organic or more um, unique or, or, I mean, you can't, this, in this way, you cannot create two um, prints. I mean, you could, you could do them side by side in the same sun with almost identical printing, you know, layers or, or the amounts of chemicals or same kind of paper but they would look differently um, and the brush strokes would come out and render differently and the, the same is true of, of all analog processes I mean film has this quality uh, to itself and a lot of the beauty of it is in selecting the type of film and it's it's this this um, taste that you develop and it becomes a tiny there's lots of little you know um, Things like uh, the type of film and the way in which you expose it and the way in which you develop this. Uh, I'm not going to go into that a lot, but you, you, you start to identify with certain types of film or certain processes or certain cameras and, and certain techniques. And it slowly builds and becomes a part of you and, or, or an extension of just the way you work or the way you... And, and the ultimate result of all these steps and all these choices and all of these little... Um, experiments let's say and all this play is um this piece that you've you've really um shaped and that it's 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 a it's yeah it's this long journey whereas i think with with digital it's this, it's a very much similar but the end result can be quite clinical and nowadays also digital is a lot of it of of digital photography is um even I mean, even on our phone, it's they have those filters where it's it's in in real time. It's it's um, smoothing, smoothing your, skin. your skin or adding bunny ears or you know <laughs> what I mean. So it is. It has an, a, a more honest quality too. It has a more. Uh, it's it's a you know it yeah. So Sh should there be an exhibition of? It's probably been done already, but should there be an exhibition where all the prints are, uh, what do you call it, like Snapchat filters, where you have bunny ears or dog faces on uh, all the on all the uh, subjects? I mean, why not? I mean, it, uh, if if there are people who are interested in seeing that, why not? You know, I'm, I'm not a, pu a purist enough to say like this is the way it should be done, or this is art, or that's not art. That's that's complete horseshit. You know. Art is completely subjective, and it's it is, you know, it's the the cream, on you know that you've sort of taken from hours or days or years of 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 creative practice and play and experimentation. That's that's what art really is, is that that um, pure form of or that that um, 
the best results from all of that creative play or, or experimentation. So yeah, if you if you're like playing and experimenting with Snap Snapchat and you've got like, you know, ten thousand photographs of of people from all over the world with bunny ears and you've allowed them to select their own filters and they are identifying and they're you know there's this collaborative space between you and the person and it's like why not i mean definitely it's it will create a dialogue and it will get people thinking and i guarantee you people will buy pieces because it art is subjective and and because um it just has to make that that connection. You know, you can't as an artist aim to please, I mean, you can try to please everyone, but you're not going to, you know. What you should really do is is make art for yourself. Make art that, that satisfies you, that makes you, that you're proud of, that you, you, you know, um, and hope that, you know, people, you're not, you don't need to be everyone's cup of tea, but if you're a, a few people's, like, premium single malt whiskey then that's incredible you know you know would you rather be um adored by thousands and millions but just like yeah he's that's okay you know it's like you know take it don't take it or would you um prefer to be really truly appreciated by a select few people who really understand and really appreciate and and could actually inform your work or influence you in some positive creative way that that would would uh, make you a better artist or a better person or you know sorry tangents man no 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 <laughs> you got I me mean, on, this, this was you a, got me on this day where but that just... specific <laughs> tangent was it's like the probably the highlight of the interview so far okay. i'd say so that's the good point you know the, 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 the tangents are are like the uh, the waves of they're like the brushstrokes on the side of the, sure. the sinotype. Those are the tangents. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe just one. I'll try to keep it short and not go off on a different tangent. But um, I keep on, when I teach photography or when I do photo walks, I, I keep on hearing people um, comment on creativity. Oh, you're so creative. Or this person's so creative. And I'm not a creative person. And I think that's it's such a a sad way to look at creativity or yourself. I mean, creativity is literally just play. It's it's creating the freedom and, and the time for yourself to experiment and to potentially fail. And you know, fun is a big part of that, you know, and you, you have to enjoy what you're doing. I mean, you're, you have a limited time on this earth. And I mean, whatever it is that you're, you know, creating, you have to try to love that you love that time you know it can't it can't it doesn't always you don't not always in love with what you're doing but but free yourself up to experiment and play and and just treat it as that like if it if you fail you fail and it, it happens way more often than you're going to succeed and then take all of that play all of that knowledge and share it and and learn from it and let it you know see if there is anything truly good or worthwhile in it and then you know, look at that and, and try to refine that or build upon that or share that more or explore that the next time and, and just do it again and again and again. And you will tap into your own a part of yourself that you're building. And it's because it's just this expression of, of who you are. And it's, it, it doesn't matter if you're a writer or a painter or an illustrator or a dancer. or a, It is that, that personal expression. It's that part of yourself that you're letting out or that you're you're giving a little voice to a little bit of time to and um it's not always going to be amazing but if you you work on it and you allow it to come out enough then ultimately it's going to be uh, your voice it's going to be who you are or who people see you as if if if, if you're successful i guess at it so and if if it's art that you're making as i said before art is the this is the curation of all that play the curation of all that time spent you know so the last two things i want to cover before we wrap up is some perspectives on productivity or work ethic okay and then after that 
where where you're where are you at right now and where do you kind of want to be career-wise like in the next couple years like mm -hmm. what are your next um aspirations what are the next things you want to try doing next sure okay so on i think I sh I, what i should also mention is this is just my point of view this is just something that i've you know all everything that i've said is just a, is, is a version i'm not i'm not suggesting that you follow this you know to a t it's just something that i i'm you know talking about now i mean in a year's time i could be i could completely have changed my mind so yeah take it all with a pinch of salt but for productivity i think a lot of it comes down to being disciplined and setting time like physically carving out time for yourself to work in and to produce in um even if it's not necessarily amazing work that you're doing it's doing the work and you have to physically do it and as much as you can so if you're a creative and you are having trouble with um just working or being productive try i would say try to reflect upon your process when do you work best um you know you're a night owl or you're a morning person do you work best after exercise just learn yourself physically reflect upon that and and try to carve out these little windows and just physically thank you sorry we've no, been sorry. A, attacked by mosquitoes so. i know <laughs> slowly getting dengue um yeah so just carve out this time and and work do the work and um and basically, if you are disciplined about it, you will become more productive. It, it's just, you know, you produce more. And then the more you produce, the more, like I said before, with amassing this creative, um, all this creative product, is you create, you curate that. And um, ideally, you don't do this alone. You, you share everything. You, you create dialogues with several different kinds of people who you respect. Not all, you don't even need to seek feedback from, from people who like you. In fact, a lot of the time it's great um, showing your work to people who you know don't particularly like you because then you can get that razor's edge, you know. Um, but yeah, just just doing the work, consistently doing work. And, and, and it helps to reward yourself sometimes. It helps to... Um, because I, I think our brains a lot of the time work um, better if we know there's going to be some kind of instant gratification soon after, and it, it helps you kind of almost like Pavlovian, you know, response from that. So, if whatever it is that helps you, um, if it's coffee or if it's break or if it's yoga or if it's whatever, you can the little things you can reward yourself with. So do a block of work. Um, for me, it's like I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna retouch this photograph i'm not going to stop until i'm done and i i do it and then i step away i go have a coffee or whatever it is go for a ride go for a swim and then come back and and that distance and then look at it again and 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 start again or go move forward from that but just be disciplined in that you know almost force yourself to um because there will be days where you work, where you wake up and you don't want to retouch, or you don't like you're doing a, a street photography project and you don't want to get out of bed. It's raining, it's cold, or it's you know the lights shit, or it's it's you know it's hazy out, or there's pollution, and you don't want to do that. But it's in it's in the whole process. It's in the whole like going out and physically walking the streets and physically going out is a part of it, and it um, it. Um, not only does it make it easier next time, it, it, it helps you. It helps um, the practice of it, the discipline. Which And discipline is a part of your craft. It's a, it's a part of developing who you are and how you do it. You know, um, yeah. I don't, I don't think uh, all these massively talented musicians and artists, I don't think it just happens overnight. I mean, it's, it's, it's a product of... You know, sometimes thousands of hours, years of, 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 you know, consciously or unconsciously doing this thing or, or working on these aspects of themselves or, or this, this desire within them um, that, yeah, ultimately hopefully comes out or, or is appreciated or is noticed or, or sees the light of day. So the other part of the question. <laughs> yeah, like, so 
career-wise, what are mm. the things that you're interested to tackle next? Sure. Um, I would really like to get into shooting um, more fashion. I'd love to do higher-end um, like fashion editorials just because there's so much wonderful creative potential and, and I think a lot of fashion editorial work um, is just, you know, it has to really grab people. It has to make the the clothing and the person look incredible. It has, it, there's so many things it has to do. Um, but also you get to work with these people who are, you know, amazing at what they do. These models who are, are incredibly passionate about what they do and these makeup artists or these art directors or um, these um, producers uh, and in locations that are amazing and and that it's it's really fun it 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 pushes you to the edge of what you can do but when you're out there you are discovering a part and and you're doing problem solving that um, is is incredible and that that you know you you know um will basically change everything for you or change, you know, uh, your craft and, and yeah. So I, I, I would love to do that just from, just for, for myself, basically, and to push myself, um, my retouching, my shooting, my, my, my creativity, my ability to work with others, just push that to the next level. And then hopefully, I mean, when I get there, just whatever the next big thing is, like what, how do you up the ante from that? Like what's the next, what are the next level of people to work with? What's the next platform to work in? You know what I mean? Um, which was great. I'm, I'm also, I want to do more um, filmmaking or videography. Um, I studied at school. I shot a lot of little short films. Uh, I haven't written a screenplay in about phew, almost 15, 16 years. So maybe, maybe something like that. I haven't written um, for a really long time. But yeah, I'd love to do that. Love to uh, get better at filmmaking and work with uh, filmmakers um, who are they're wonderful creative people, and you know just see what happens, what what you could actually do, or uh, what's what's possible. It's it's fun. It's all fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, David, thank you for your time today and for uh, telling us about your process and your work. Mm. Really appreciate it. Well, thank uh, you. I'm um, sorry for rambling on so no. much. Hopefully, it's not all, <laughs> all dribble. Lovely rambles. If somebody would like to learn more about your work, mm -hmm. do you have any websites or social media handles that they can follow? Sure. Um, my website is uh, daviddredge.com, so D-A-V-I-D-D-R-E-D-G-E.com. Uh, on Instagram, I'm at daviddredge, and on Facebook, I am... Facebook.com forward slash David Dredge Photography. Okay. So, yeah, that's me. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe. Mm -hmm. You can watch us on YouTube or you can listen to us in your favorite podcasting app. And, yeah, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank Appreciate you for your, your time. time. <laughs> comment below. Leave us a comment. Mm -hmm. I'll read it. I'll probably reply. Mm -hmm. you know, as long as there's less than five comments I'll definitely reply to all of them mm -hmm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> great well nah, thanks again yeah my pleasure thank you mm -hmm.